Lifeway Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Todd Atkins. And today I am here back again with guest co-host Ben Mandrell. Great to be with you and one of my favorite guests all time we're talking to today. That's why I had to get in here to talk to Carrie. That's true. I'm not going to tell people. Well, you may want to edit that out, but I'm super pumped about this conversation because I love talking about reaching unchurched people and he's one of the best. To be on with you, man. All right. So the the voice you hear on the other side is- We took Daniel M. back. We took uh, Daniel (laughs) back just so that Ben, we we had to create room for Ben somehow. So our country stole Daniel and now there's room for Ben. Daniel still does one of our podcasts. He still does New Church's podcast with me and Ed. So you can still no, that's edit all like you vintage. Want. That's no, that's vintage uh, stuff. You're just recycling him using <laughs> voice altering technology. He's gone. Recorded, he's he's plugging his book. He's got a new book coming out in January. So <laughs> he so does. He'll be there. Uh, speaking of books, okay. So mm-hmm. Carrie does not have a book until like August. So this is not about a book <laughs> yet. It's kind of about a book because. During the month of January, we're giving away three free courses uh, on Grid that are exclusive to Grid that we recorded with Carrie on mm-hmm. uh, on on your books. And so, if someone gets on and takes the free course and they actually complete the course, we're gonna send them uh, a free copy at our expense of didn't see it coming. How is that for a deal? See, that's the best ever. <laughs> like it really is. Like you, you give free courses and then you give my book away. This is a whole new business model. I love it. <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a great business model and I'm doing it <laughs> in front of my new um, president and CEO of Lifeway. So. <laughs> but I am doing it with uh, two two church planners. So so we're good to go now. All right. Awesome. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our questions. So uh, you want to begin? No, you go ahead. I'm okay. You're great at starting these things. All right. So, uh, Carrie, you know, one of the things that um, I love about you and people that have listened to you on the podcast before is just you're open and transparent with your failures. So I want to know what is a conflict or failure that has benefited you and your leadership? Oh, benefited me. Yeah, like in retrospect. Uh, well, burnout was one of them, but we talked that one to death. So, you know, burning out turned out, I mean, and that, and that's a thing, right? Like, it's always fun to say, oh, I failed in this area. But like when I, when I burned out, like it was so dark. I really thought it was over. I thought life was over. I thought leadership was over. I thought ministry was over. I'll give you a real current one right now. Um, you know, I led the church for 24 years and we broke the thousand barrier and, you know, launched campuses and da-da-da-da-da, reached lots of people for Jesus. Um, and then, and then uh, you know, I passed that over a few years ago, but now I'm leading my company, which is really small, really ninja. Um, and we have like seven of us who do this full time. And... Uh, I, I realize I'm hitting a lid. We've still got double digit, in some cases, triple digit growth uh, on the platforms, you know, the the books, the podcast, the blog, speaking, that kind of thing. It's all up and to the right, which is great. But I can see the lid coming and the lid is me. So here's the irony. I write on leadership, but I'm also the leadership lid. And I realized, and, and so yesterday I did, a, a, I hired a private executive coach. It is not cheap. 
And this is a guy who's done dozens of companies, serial entrepreneur, written books. I've, I've worked with him in different uh, parts before. And I'm like, I need you to coach me through my leadership lid. And I realize that for me, I can be a little bit controlling. Uh, I like to have my finger in it. I like to... Um, I like to create rather than to equip. I think I'm a decent student of leadership, but understanding what the problems are and then dealing with them in your own life, those are two different things. This is just like, huh, okay, I bet you I'm going to hit a lid because I think we could double right now, but I don't think we could 5X and I don't think we could 10X. And the reason is me. So that's what I'm trying to figure out how to get better on. That's really good, Carrie. I think one of the hardest things to do in leadership is to figure out how do I scale it? How do I not just be yeah. successful individually, but how do we no, touch more 100%. people with this? And the analogy my coach uses is the difference between growth and scale is growth is running up and down. You're building a skyscraper. So uh, to get to the 20th floor, you're running up and down the stairs. And you can do that when you're young and you can do that a few times. But if you got to go up and down the stairs, you know, 10 times a day, you're going to be exhausted. And scaling is building an elevator. You push a button and you go up to the 30th floor. Can and you, <clears throat> I want to figure out how to build an elevator. Can you tell uh, just a quick story about a similar time in the course of your ministry where, you know, the similar thing happened to where you hit a lid and then how did you yeah. overcome that? 100%. Uh, getting past the thousand barrier, uh, it wasn't it wasn't excruciating, but we just kept hitting the ceiling. You know that feeling where you're like, okay, we're going to do it this time. And then you hit your head on the ceiling. You're like, what? Uh, what is that? And so what that was for me was a couple of things. One was decision making. And I wasn't making all of the decisions, but the team wasn't empowered enough for for them to really make decisions on their own on a consistent basis. So I had to completely change the level of autonomy and responsibility that was there because, and I don't even know how to articulate this properly. You guys would probably be able to do it better, Ben and Todd. But um, I, I just think, you know, I ended up in a place where it was just crossing my desk. And if you have to have your finger in a lot of things, you just, nat it's a natural limit on growth. And so what I did was I put a decision-making matrix together. And it's, it's simpler. It's more complicated than to make it sound, but I'll give it to you. And it was simply this. If it's on vision, on strategy, and on budget, you don't, I don't even need to know about it. You just go for it. And that cleared the backlog of decisions. And by on vision, I meant like if it's broadly consistent with what we're doing, on strategy, we had a defined strategy. We also added a value system. So as long as it doesn't violate that, and again, it's a pretty permissive giving strategy. And then on budget. And by on budget, I don't mean, you know, line item number 36B sub 1 you said you were going to spend $82 on this, but you spent 83. We better talk about it. I'm saying if you have 50,000 in the budget, I don't care how you spend it. If you're the, you know, let's say in a large church, a student pastor, you have 50 grand, you spend it all on candy. Great. As long as you reach people for Jesus, you want to spend it all on curriculum. Great. As long as you reach people for Jesus, it's 50,000 and $1. 
oh, we should probably talk, all right? Because that's just financial or you need to talk to operations. But that really, that matrix, and I'm not saying that should be the matrix, that cleared a lot of decisions. And then I had to get comfortable with not knowing. I had to get really comfortable with like really having no clue of what's going on. And one of the things that set us up for succession was in 2014, yeah, 2013, 2014, I gave Jeff Brody, who was then in his 30s, uh, responsibility for the building project. So all I did, I was in on some of the high level meetings and you know, had a look at the design. I raised money, I raised vision, and I let him run the entire project. And he crushed it, did a great job. Carrie, and uh, that's when I knew he was ready. Can I go back to something you said earlier? Because I want to probe a little deeper. You were, sure. you were talking about how you're now on this really lean, fast-moving, agile team, but you just left something that was huge and significant, a big part of your life. I'm kind of feeling like your story <laughs> might be my story a little bit. Like, Except in reverse. How are you adjusting to that identity change of just who you've been for so many years is not who you are anymore every day when you wake up? Like, how are you processing all that? Coach me and counsel me a little bit. question. Really good question, Ben. So I had one of my mentors ask me probably eight years ago, um, you know, and I was in my 40s at that time, mid 40s. And he just said, Carrie, are Conexus and you inseparable? Hmm. And this is, this is why he's such a great mentor. I mean, there was lots of stuff under that question. But he really made me think. And I kind of fudged the answer at the beginning. And obviously, I thought about the question a lot. I can tell you exactly what the question was eight years later. And I realized that the answer was probably no, that too much of my identity was in the church. But if the church was going to be healthy and if I was going to be healthy down the road, then the answer had to become yes. So I worked very hard on praying. It was actually a spiritual exercise, Ben. And I had to pray through, okay, how do I disentangle myself from this? And, and what is the best friend in all that is the mission. Because the mission is to create churches that unchurched people love to attend. And, you know, that's not particular to me. That's not unique to me. And one of the great joys, it was a little bit awkward at first uh, when Jeff and I did the transition back in late 2015, four and a half years ago. But... Uh, you know, it, I, had, I had worked through it to the point where theoretically it felt good and then practically it wasn't that difficult. Now, two things helped me. One, Jeff's doing a great job. <laughs> so, you know, if my successor was a disaster, I don't know how I'd be doing with it, yeah. but he's, he's done great. And the church is bigger than when I led it. It's better than when I led it. We, we're financially healthier than when I led it. And I mean, I didn't hand over a limping thing. I hadn't handed Conexus over at its largest double-digit growth with money in the bank. And I gave that to Jeff because I didn't, you know, I thought he might need a year or two just to, to find his feet. He didn't, but I thought that really helped. And then the second thing was I had something else to throw myself into. And at that time, all the stuff I do now is still kind of a, at the hobby level, didn't really have a team. And it had taken off, but not with a whole lot of attention from me. And now I give it pretty much my full-time attention. So back to the question. Now that's an active question, is what I do as a speaker and writer and blogger and podcaster. Is that my identity? Is it really? I don't really know. Um, you know, so you're right back at it again. Now, the good news is the church is strong. The church is in great shape. And what I wanted to do, because none of us, I think, who start larger things 
we all think we're going to, but then when it happens, you're like, oh, wow, what just happened? And then you realize this is bigger than me and I have a responsibility. And so I feel like the, the church is firmly in the hands of the second generation now, you know, not the founders, uh, but the generation that came after and well set up to pass it on to the third generation. So I feel like that box is almost ticked. Uh, but then I have to think about, well, what is this? And I don't know. So we're working through that right now. But I'm hiring team and equipping people and diversifying voices and trying to make sure that the mission in what I do these days is to help people thrive in life and leadership. And uh, I'd like to get a team engaged in helping people thrive in life and leadership. That's really good. I think that being a church planner, you, you nailed it. It's it seems doubly difficult when you started it and when you it was your baby and your your identity gets even more wrapped up in it. Um, just having left an established church and then left a church plant, it was definitely more painful to leave a church plant because it, it felt even more of myself was wrapped up in that, which isn't altogether healthy. Uh, and so I was just no, thinking about you. I mean, your first Christmas, not doing Christmas Eve <laughs> services, that's got to be a change, man. It is. It is. You know, and you just step right into a CEO role. So, right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a withdrawal, but it's also an advance. It is. Right? It is. And you, you can, and, and you're young. I mean, you can, you can wrap your identity in anything you're doing. And so what's the alternative? It's a really good question because the alternative, Tony and I, my wife and I, we've talked about this enough to know, and, and I'm not trying to judge. It's probably going to sound judgy, but you know, it's not like endless margaritas in a golf course like that in a beach. Like that is not our future. We don't feel called to that. And, and to be honest with you, it's not that appealing. Right. So I love the idea of helping people, of using the gifts that God has given me to equip. Uh, and I can see myself doing this for decades. But, you know, your identity question really, it's not the stuff you own. It's not the money you have or don't have. It's not the things you do, which is the particular poison for a lot of us in ministry and leadership. Uh, we all know the story that the day you retire, the phone stops ringing and all of us think that's not going to be us, but it's probably going to be you. So it really raises the whole question of like, well, who are you? And that's a really interesting question. Really so good. here's a little thing that I've been doing for over 10 years now. But in my devotion time in the morning, I, I have made it a discipline not to read anything that I would be using in any direct sense in ministry that day or that season. So there's no... There's no like, oh, I'm going to get ahead on Sunday. No, that is that is like Carrie is the human being connecting with God. So so there's that. And then <laughs> this is going to sound terribly unfaithful. I try not to pray about ministry or work stuff that much in my personal prayer life because I try to imagine, okay, what is my life outside of all of this? And then And then who does God want me to be? And who are the things and people that are concerns to me personally? And then that's what I try to pray about when I pray. And so I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing or, you know, one therapy session from being cured, but that's, that's what I do to help disentangle the mess that is often leadership. All right. I'm going to go ahead and move us to our, uh, to our next question. Clearly Todd thought that was heresy. I just thought um, <laughs> there was a 90 second leadership that I did on a uh, transition and I can see the visual now. And I was like, man, I would love to stand next to Carrie and just break this down <laughs> for people sometime. I think it would be. I'm down for that. I'm so down for that. Fun. That'd be fun. This is, Todd is such a huge issue. It's such a huge issue. I mean, I think the average age of clergy now is mid 50s. 
And like, I'm not saying you have to go it. Maybe you got 10 great years left in the tank, but there's a lot of people who don't. And like, this is a huge issue and your identity is attached to it and money is attached to it. And like, it can be, it can be easy to stay for all the wrong reasons. There's uh, the three elements of this framework are really, um, it is a combination of the work of the ministry, preparing a successor and creating a life outside of, of that current role worth yeah. living. And so what <laughs> most people do is they are focused on the work of the ministry all the way up into the end. That line does not, you know, it does not descend very, very much. And so it's the, the other two just come at the very end. But um, man, next time you're in town, I would love to We'll do that, actually. That would be fun to record. I love that. All right. Um, so when we look at our next question, I do want to move us on. Who or what has been the greatest leadership influence in your life? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, who or what? I learned an awful lot. I'll go with it because, you know, I could say Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner, Patrick Lencioni, you know, I could say that, which is, which is true. Uh, but I watched my parents a lot. So I was born in Canada. My parents both were born in Holland. My mom came over with her parents when she was like 11. My dad came over at 19. They met and married in Canada. And, you know, it was a hard life. My grandparents were not, never wealthy. Um, they got treated pretty poorly as European immigrants in the 1950s in Canada, um, you know, stuff that would be illegal today <laughs> was stuff they had to put up with as immigrants. And, uh, and I watched, I watched my family growing up. And, you know, I remember at the age of eight watching my grandfather shovel manure and I would just hang out with him cause he was my grandpa and he was awesome. And, uh, watching him in the greenhouse, when it was 100 degrees Fahrenheit and, you know, he's running the rototiller just getting ready for the next bed of chrysanthemums at this florist, this, these greenhouses. And, you know, still today, when I smell a chrysanthemum, I think of my grandfather and being in that greenhouse. It's crazy. And, you know, I, you're a kid. You don't really have a filter for that. But years later, my dad would tell me how upset it made him to see his father-in-law work under those conditions. But what I learned in that moment was was how much dignity there was in work. And finally, my dad kind of sprung my grandfather out of that greenhouse and got him a job as a custodian at the plant that my dad ended up managing. And so, uh, you know, my grandfather, he would call me. I was like 10 years old. He's like, Carrie, I'm going on a trip. We're going, we lived in Windsor right across the river from Detroit. You know, I'm, I'm heading to Wisconsin. You want to come with me? So I would just sit in the truck, the steak truck with my grandfather for two days while we drove to Wisconsin and back. And that was fun when you're 10 years old. But I saw how much like he approached those menial minimum wage jobs with all the diligence that, uh, that you know, anybody making six figures would theoretically put behind their work. And it taught me that there was dignity in all work. And so I would say that was a huge influence. And then watching my parents when I was 15 launch their own business, something they had dreamed about and saved for for years. And then they ran that for 25 years and shut it down about 15 years ago. Mm. And seeing all the lessons with that, 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 that just taught me a ton. And I think I'm a, a huge beneficiary 
of what I learned from my family in terms of work and work ethic and just pride in, in the smallest of things. It's great. Uh, man, it's great to hear someone talk about the, the influence of their parents. That's a, a important and powerful lesson. I want to go back though and ask you about, you mentioned Andy Stanley, Reggie Joyner and Patrick Lencioni. Yeah. I want to nail you on this one. Like, Okay, each of those guys, in a sentence, what they really taught you. Like, what did Andy, Andy Stanley... taught me clear communication. Okay. Uh, pushed me like crazy when he first started. And this is, you know, it's axiomatic now in leadership. But, you know, when I first started tracking with Andy and then got to know him, and it's like, no, boil it down to a single sentence. I'm like, no way. Yeah. Gosh, he was right on that. And uh, so clear communication from Andy... And a lot of emotional intelligence. If you really, if you have been privileged to spend time with Andy and you learn so much on just how to handle stuff. Reggie, just the key of relationship, 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 relationship. I was talking with my oldest son about this the other night. You know, we were having one of those conversations that, um, you know, could, could go south. It was like I was doing some stuff that was bothering him. And I'm like, man, thanks for fighting for the relationship. And that's something that we've done. And I learned that, you know, you fight for people, not with people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's 100% Reggie. And then Pat Lencioni, just the, the emotional intelligence side of leadership. Uh, Pat's talked about his, you know, his dad working for a company and just complaining about it all the time. And, you know, I think back even to my childhood, I can still, I say to my parents sometimes who are both still living, I can still name all the people you worked with, right? Because I won't name names because it's a public forum, but I'm like, what about this guy? What about that guy? And they're like, how do you remember that? Like 40 years later, it's like, well, you know, you sit around enough dinner tables, you talk about who you work with. And Pat's thing was my dad would have been a better father, would have been a better father if he had a better manager. Hmm. Because he came home frustrated and depleted every day. And I don't know what happened, whether he took it out on his kids or whether he just wasn't there or he was so exhausted he had nothing left in the tank. It immediately resonates with me. So those are three that come to mind. I love that last one too. I mean, I, his work has just greatly impacted me when he wrote Three Signs of a Miserable Job, which I think later was called The Secret to Employee Engagement or something like that. But, you know, <laughs> we spend so much time at work and we don't think often yeah. about the indirect relationship with all these people and when they go home and how they function with their families because they had a great day at work. Uh, so it's, it's something yeah. we rarely talk about. It, but it's really a part of the ministry that we have in terms of creating spaces where people love to come and, and find the dignity in work and go home with a great attitude about it. It's really good. Well, and this is a, a passion point for me. I want to produce more content in this area, mm-hmm. but churches as a rule are terrible employers. <laughs> let's just call it for what it is. It's a bad environment. Um, you know, a lot of people point to high pay in churches and that's the, you know, the 0.5%. Reality is most churches pay horribly and that puts stress on families. And uh, a lot of pastors have great hearts, but they're not great managers and they're not great leaders. And, uh, you know, I struggled in that area and I'm, I'm not claiming perfection now. You know, go talk to my team. They'll tell you all about it. I have good days, I have bad days. But... I think of the culture that we create at work has a direct impact at home because mm-hmm. your energy is not fixed. It either grows or it diminishes over the course of the day. And there's a difference between coming home tired because you worked really hard and coming home defeated because it was miserable. 
And I think way too many people come home from work defeated. And I think that should change. This leads so well into the next question because the next question we want to ask you is, what do you want your leadership legacy to be? When you think about when it's all said and done, what do you want people to say about Carrie? Yeah, I guess for the people who interacted with my content, I mean, I don't think it's about me. I don't think it's about, you know, oh, there was this guy, you know, blah, blah, blah. I think people will forget you. I think we think we're way more important than we are. But what I would hope, what I would hope is that their lives were somehow meaningfully different, like better. Uh, whether that was the relationship with God, the relationship with their family, the relationship with their friends or the people they work with, the teams they led. And, and then there was some insight or some strategy or some help that, that made them better. And then I would say for the people who knew me personally, it would be that he loved well. I'm an Enneagram 8. I don't do that naturally. So I'm trying to learn how to love. I think you love deeply as an Enneagram 8, but it just doesn't come, come across that way. So I hope it would be that they felt well loved. So what's your combo? Are you an eight, seven, eight, nine? Eight, seven. Me too. Yeah. Oh, that's fun. Like it is literally the fun wing. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. It's when I switch into the fun wing that it's fun. I think Ben, you're, you're seven, eight, I'm a right? strong seven. And then, no, I don't think I go eight. I, I think I go seven, something else. I forget what my wing was. You go six? <laughs> All I saw was he's enthusiast. I can tell you he's a seven, eight. Okay. I think. For sure. Seven, eight's Challenger? Is that what that is? Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Mm-hmm. I'm for sure. Just hanging out. We're all going to yeah. argue about each other. I'm always wanting to take it up a notch. <laughs> let's take it up a notch. Let's have more fun. Let's get more excited and let's make it better. Uh, true. So that's, good. Uh, that's one of the I'm things that, that I would say um, that you bring to the table, that you've brought to the table, um, is that, you know, you do want people to go home and when they talk about working at, life way that it is meaningful um certainly and that it is focused on the church and serving the church but that people have fun in the process that they're going to talk about what happened it's a lot more fun when people are having fun so let's make it fun (laughs) i mean family camp if you ever go to family camp you learn leadership 101 and that is like if it's fun everybody enjoys it that's true so being a family camp speaker the last five years has been one of the best leadership moves i've ever made because i've gotten to see like so many college kids so pumped up about what they do. And my kids go home and talk about it for months. All right. Oh, so- ben, I hear you. That's a, that's a heart of mine. Like, I want people who've worked with me or quote for me. I want them to go home feeling built up, lifted up. Yep. And one of the greatest things team members tell me this is like, oh, work is a break from life. I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like if work is a break from life, usually work is a drag on life. And if work feels like one of the best things you do, that's cool. I can't run the rest of your life, but I can I can control the climate at work. Well, Kerry, you've been a speaker guy and an upfront stage guy, and, and you've been around the scene enough to know that there's a lot of folks up on the stage that when you get to know them off the stage, it's kind of disappointing. <laughs> I mean, I, I want to believe that I'm going to be a guy that when people get to know me personally, they like me better than when I'm on the stage. But I know that, that there's always that temptation to create this persona when you're speaking behind a microphone that's not true off the field, right? 
Oh yeah, a hundred percent. I would have to say, and maybe I'm just not a very good student of people. I've found that to be the exception, not the the rule. That most of the people you see are actually really decent uh, people, and obviously there are some some exceptions to that. But yeah, you know, and I've thought about that a lot. I get I get asked that a lot, and you know, I hope the experience of people personally is even better than the experience of people publicly. But I do get a lot of young leaders. I have a lot of young leaders who listen to my podcast or read my stuff. And, and they'll say, you know, how do I build a platform? And I'm like, well, I'm not sure that's the right question. Because um, I don't know whether you build a platform or do you do something significant enough that kind of gets you noticed enough to have a platform. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. I think one of the great advantages I have is I didn't really like 10 years ago, very few people knew my name. And I had a fraction of the size of the audience I have today, which meant that I'd already lived a decade and a half of leadership, two decades of leadership, now about a decade and a half maybe, um, out of the public eye. So I'd already cut my teeth. I already knew who I was. I'd been through the dark night of the soul. And then, you know, in the last decade, as, as lots and lots of people have shown up, um, I, I kind of am just me. And that's really easy. That's great for a bunch of reasons. Number one, there's no cognitive dissonance. I have felt a little bit like I've had some marketing voices that are like, this is how you need to position this. And I'm like, ah, wait a minute. And then you think about it and you're like, oh no, here's why I can't do it that way. It's just not me. Right. Yeah. But I had, I had a couple decade head start. And then the second thing is if you're actually just you, you get to do that every day effortlessly for the rest of your life. Like you don't have to make something up. You're not trying you know, they say, if you're trying to live a, lie, live a lie, if you're trying to tell a lie, I have to remember what I said. If you're telling the truth, you never have to remember. You just tell people, well, this is what happened. And so I feel like that's what I get to do. And everything I write is not great or perfect. And everything I say isn't ideal, but at least it's me. And that means I can do it again tomorrow. That's so awesome. it's, there's a tremendous freedom in not having to pretend uh, you're someone you're not. And everything I hear about you, Carrie, I truly mean this, is you really are the real deal. And you are who you well, Todd are. Todd will give you the skinny and like my riders. No, and so here's Carrie. He rolls in usually earlier than he's supposed to be there. Uh, in my then, limo? Yeah, this That's is nice. your MO. You roll in. Oh, early. MO. I thought you said in my limo. I'm like, oh, this no. is interesting. I'd love to <laughs> hear more. limo. <laughs> this is not the 1980s. <laughs> Uh, no, no, you'll <laughs> roll in an Uber. No, uh, no, you, you show up early usually, uh, and you'll hang out with literally anyone. And this is actually what I like about both of you and Ben. Um, you both have the ability to make people feel like they're a million bucks and it doesn't matter if the size of their church or, um, you know, how important they are or where they are in the pecking order. Um, and it's not like, you know, you've gone back and sat in the green room at Pipeline or anything like that. You uh, – or, or even like going into coaching rooms. I mean, like you, you'll, you'll do all that. And so I've always really deeply appreciated that about you. Well, I appreciate that. But, you know, that's that's kind of how you want to be treated, right? That's what you're hoping for. And it's not hard to do. And, um, you know, there's this interesting story, and I'm certainly not Muhammad Ali, but uh, there was, I think this is a Cal Fussman story. And I might be getting some of the details wrong, but Cal Fussman is a well-known journalist 
who got to follow Muhammad Ali. And, and this is for all of us. So, I mean, if you, let's say you don't have books or speak or whatever, but you're just speaking at a church, you got a thousand people coming or 800 people coming or 500 people coming, whatever it is, right? Most of the people who listen to this are in some kind of public role. So Fussman is following Muhammad Ali around and uh, he's still healthy. His Alzheimer's isn't that bad, but he spends three days with him for this like feature piece he's doing for the New Yorker or something. And they're coming out of a train station and this woman stops, this is pre-iPhone, and says, oh my goodness, you're Muhammad Ali. And he goes, yes, ma'am, I am. And she says, could I have a photograph? And she pulls out her camera, like a camera camera. So he, he takes some time and he poses with her, makes sure she gets the right shot. And then he takes the camera and says, do you mind if I look at this just to make sure that you got it right? And he goes, oh, you got a good picture. That's great. Listen, you have a great day, ma'am. And so Fussman and him are walking away back to Ali's place. And he's like, why did you do that? Like, do you do that every time? And he said, oh yeah, I do that every time. And he said, the reason I do it that way is he said, for me, that, that happens a million times, but for her, it happened once. And he said, I wanted to have her to have a great experience. That's great. And I thought, oh man, that's just gold, right? Because I can be impatient. I can be like, oh, please, I'm, I, listen, I got to catch a flight. And sometimes if you really do have to go, or there are events where I'm kind of surgically in and out because of a tight schedule. And, and I can be tempted to blow people off. But then I try to remember that story and I'm like, okay, so maybe they do listen or maybe they do read or it impacted them in some way. This is their one opportunity. I can take 10 seconds, look them in the eye and thank them. And I can even say, hey, you know what? I got to get moving because I got a flight, but thank you so much. It means a lot. And so I just think for all of us who lead in the public eye, that's a really, if Muhammad Ali can do it, I can do it. Carrie, let me ask you one last question and we'll have to finish yeah. up here. But there's a question I've been wanting to ask you is every time I read your stuff, I'm just amazed at how fresh it feels. And I just mm. wonder how, how do you do the process of that inhale, exhale how much reading do you do? How do you keep that well full of fresh water so that when you sit down to write something, you got something to say? How do you do that? Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting question. So I, I do try to make sure that output equals or input equals output because I think your well does run dry. Um, so I try to read. I'm probably not nearly, people think I'm this voracious reader. I'm probably not that good. I might read... I'm going to say 25 books in a year, maybe a few more, maybe 30. And so I read maybe a book a week. But, you know, there are CEOs who read two books a day. I'm like, I'm not that guy. Um, I do listen to audiobooks. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, I try to go a little bit deeper online. Like uh, I've got a, a subscription to the Harvard Business Review and uh, New York Times and so on. So I'll try to read more in-depth pieces. And then I have the privilege of talking to a lot of leaders, right, with what I do. And so in Evernote, I just keep this file of ideas and it's so hacked. It's like just called blog post 2020. And anytime I have a fragment of ideas and you know how that happens. Yeah, you just throw it on there before the you forget it. Just throw it on there. And it it's in code. Like if you looked at it, you're like, this is gobbledygook. This makes no sense, but it makes sense to me. Yeah. And then I don't use all those ideas, but when I feel stuck, I'll go back. And then I would say there's a couple of other keys to making it feel fresh. Number one, bring your struggle into it. Like, don't be the expert. Like, I figured all this out and blah, blah, blah. Like, what? okay, what are you struggling with? Because if I've learned, people are like, where's your content come from? It's like, these are all the things I struggle with. And if you struggle with it, chances are 
everybody else is struggling with mm-hmm. it. And so I don't pretend to struggle with it if I if I don't. Like I have certain things that are always bothersome to me and then other things that I just, they're not a deep struggle for me. So I try to be honest about what what I'm writing about. And, and then the last thing, it was something that um, Brian Orm, who used to edit church leaders back in the day, told me. He just said, you use very visceral, non-predictive language. So I'm just going to do a quick search before we sign off. But I wrote a blog post like at the time of recording about why leadership is so exhausting and what to do about it. And I had just some ideas in in the mix, but then I tried to express them better. And so I was going to say, what is the fear underneath rest? Like, why don't I rest? And then I'm like, oh, here's the way to phrase it differently. Rest looks like weakness. Um, Another one of the key points in that post was your ratio of output to input is skewed. And so I worked really hard, well, hard, 45 seconds on the word for skewed, you know, went to the dictionary. And I'm like, oh, that's a good word. Because otherwise, what people, this is how people access a post. For anybody who writes online, um, you look at the headline. If the headline's interesting, so why leadership is so exhausting and what to do about it. But then you look at the bullet points. So you bold them and make them big. If it said, uh, so I said, you know, your ratio of output to input is skewed. I could have written, um, you're not getting enough input. Um, You don't take time off. You're not sure when you start. Uh, work is never done and resting is hard. That's not as interesting. It feels like you've read that before. So you gotta, you gotta say it in a way that's true and accurate. It's not clickbait, but it's just like, what do you mean your ratio of output to input is skewed? What do you mean you're never really off? Oh, because of technology, right? You're watching Disney plus and like, you got to answer three emails. Okay. And you're never really on. Oh, because you're doing life at work, right? There's no finish line and rest looks like weakness. So what all of those headlines are designed to do is throw a little curveball into your brain to make you go, what do you mean? Rest looks like weakness. That's really oh, good. Oh, I'm that's afraid really of being lazy. Yeah. So, so that's what makes the skew in it. And then I always try to include a solution. So uh, thank you to Brian Orm, if you're listening for that tidbit. I haven't forgotten. (laughs) That was years ago. But I think, you know, because you look at a lot of leadership uh, posts, even on, on, on huge publications, and I won't name them, but all the standard business ones, it's like, you know, five keys to leadership development. Number one, learn. Number two, grow. Number three, rest. Number four, you know, like, heard those a million times before. Tell me something I don't know. So mine are often familiar concepts, but expressed in a fresh and unfamiliar way. Carrie, I've got to head out, but man, I, I hope I can meet you this year. I really want to, I really want to like personally, like have a He's long, gonna through Nashville. We're gonna like, can we please yeah, have well, coffee when you come? Let's go for dinner when I'm in town. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to figure out how to. Congratulations. Thanks for the work you're doing. And it's been a joy to meet you this way. And uh, we'll just hang out in person next time. Man, love the conversation and can't wait to pick it up again soon. All right. Uh, thanks so much for listening to the Five Leadership Questions podcast. And uh, tune in next time. Please hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review.